After a summer hiatus, Harry's take is finally back and better than ever. This episode is surely worth the wait. This morning, I am absolutely thrilled to have attorney, crisis manager, author, and more, Lanny Davis, on the show. Lanny has provided counsel in some of the biggest lawsuits in history, including the trial of Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen. Lanny has also served on the special counsel of former President Bill Clinton and was appointed by former President George W. Bush to serve on the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board in 2005. It is safe to say that Lanny is a very accomplished individual, and I couldn't be happier to welcome him onto Harry's take. Welcome, Lanny. Thank you, Harry. Nice to be here. Okay, so to start off, um, I want to ask a few questions about the Michael Cohen case. For those who don't know, the Michael Cohen case involved the pros the prosecution of Donald Trump's former personal attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, on charges including tax evasion, bank fraud, and, camp and campaign finance violations, which ultimate ultimately led to his co cooperation with federal investigators and a significant impact on the Trump presidency. So, Lanny, can you provide some insights into your role as Michael Cohen's attorney during his legal troubles in cooperation with the government? Well, my only role, uh, not as a criminal defense lawyer, he had another lawyer when the Southern District prosecutors in New York uh, prosecuted him and he pled guilty uh, to almost all of the crimes he pled guilty to were actions that the prosecutors said were directed by Donald Trump for his benefit as Michael would explain. So I wasn't his criminal defense lawyer. I mm -hmm. was an advisor when he decided at some point uh, after his work for Trump and after his uh, guilty plea to speak to the public and to speak the truth about Donald Trump after over 10 years of working for him. And in that capacity, I helped advise him when he appeared before a congressional committee publicly on both national and international television, I was his advisor as to how to do that effectively. Oh, so that's interesting. So what, what would you say were the most challenging aspects of uh, dealing with such a high profile case, as you mentioned, was broadcasted globally? Well, it was quite easy under the circumstances. Of course, it was a challenge and a lot of pressure because of, uh, the reality of Republican critics on this committee, the House uh, Oversight Committee, chaired by the late Congressman Elijah Cummings from Maryland. But the Republicans, uh, led by Congressman uh, Jim Jordan of Ohio, and then Congressman Mark Meadows, before he became President Trump's chief of staff, were uh, expected and they lived up to expectations to do nothing but name call Michael with the word liar. And we had to be prepared for basically verbal abuse without facts because all Michael spoke were facts and we backed up those facts by documents. But we needed to prepare for basically labeling and attack words from the Republicans, but no facts. And we responded by using facts, not by responding uh, except for one exception to their attack words of liar. They even had a sign on the wall like eighth graders 
uh, excuse me, no disrespect intended, but I did disrespect the sign, which they had on the wall behind the Republican side of the panel, uh, liar, liar, pants on fire. And when I saw the sign, it reminded me of eighth grade. <laughs> that's funny. But that's very interesting. So you based your uh, counsel on facts, which is probably the best thing to do rather than stoop to the level of name calling. Yes. In fact, the challenge that Michael, it wasn't me, I was just his advisor, really all credit to Michael Cohen. He was brave. He knew he was facing severe consequences, including going to prison. Uh, the federal prosecutors said that Donald Trump directed him to pay the hush money to an adult film star, directed him to lie to Congress about negotiations with Russia over having a tower in Moscow labeled the Trump Tower, and he was untruthful, disclosing the duration of the time that he was talking to the Russians about that tower. He pled guilty to crimes at the direction of Donald Trump. And that's not according to Michael Cohn or me, that was according to federal prosecutors in written public uh, materials to the court where they said it was Donald Trump who directed Michael to do these things. It was, certainly wasn't for his benefit for him to pay $130,000 of hush money. It was for Donald Trump's benefit right before the election. And it was deemed a crime because it was politically motivated, which made it into an illegal campaign donation. So that side of things, I wasn't really a part of, he had a, a defense counsel in New York that helped guide him through his guilty pleas. What we were doing uh, in front of Congressman Cummings, knowing it would be in public for the first time, is for Michael Cohen to accept responsibility for all the bad things he had done for Donald Trump, no excuses. Mm -hmm. And he started out by expressing that he owned the uh, what he called the uh, evil deeds that he did for Donald Trump for 10 years no excuses. And then he simply addressed the facts as opposed to the lies that he had uh, or misdeeds that he had done for Donald Trump. And that was the strategy is just tell the truth and back up everything you say by documents that he had in his files. And some of those documents led to the criminal case that's now against Mr. Trump scheduled for trial in March involving the hush money to Ms. Uh, Stormy Daniels. And the other case that you're now reading about is the attorney general civil case accusing the Trump organization, Mr. Trump, of fraud in his financial statements. All that began and to this day will be about what Donald uh, Trump uh, did in financial statements and inventing figures to get bank loans under fraud by inflating his assets or reducing his property taxes by deflating his assets on his financial statements. And Michael Cohen laid all that out all the way back to 2019, February 27th. Everything since then, you're now seeing unfold both in the civil case, the New York Attorney General has uh, just won a judgment on for finding the Trump Organization uh, for committing fraud, bank fraud. And now the criminal case expected to be tried in March involving uh, the Stormy Daniels hush money payment that Michael Cohen was directed to pay by Donald Trump uh, right before the election. Trump didn't want to pay it himself. He wanted Michael to pay it for him. And a whole long story as to why Michael was willing to do that, expecting to be reimbursed, which he ultimately was while Donald Trump as a sitting president. He was writing personal checks from his personal checking account 
to reimburse Michael Cohen for a hush money scheme, which Michael Cohen pled guilty to. So you'd have to ask the logical question if logic matters to Trump supporters. So if Michael Cohen pled guilty and went to jail for a crime that federal prosecutors working for his administration said he directed Michael Cohen to do, how is it possible that Donald Trump is innocent if Michael Cohen was forced to plead guilty to doing something that Trump directed him to do? Wow, that's a very interesting dynamic between those two. And the last thing I want to discuss about the Cohen case, um, fast forward to today, how do you think Michael Cohen's case impacted the landscape and public perception of the Trump administration? Well, we have to look at the portion of the electorate that is open to facts as opposed to the portion of the electorate where facts don't matter, who are under the, uh, let's just say, the sway of Donald Trump. And let's say that number is 40% of the electorate that doesn't care about facts. And among Democrats like me, no matter what, I would never vote for Trump. But there's a 20% in the middle that will decide the election in 2024. Uh, these are the independent voters, uh, soft Republicans and uh, Democrats that don't always vote along party lines. It's about 20% of the electorate. And those are the folks that turned out in 2018 uh, and voted against Trump, 2000 Trump endorsed candidates, 2020 voted for Joe Biden and elected him president, 2022, despite it being a year that was a big prediction of a Republican wave in Congress, uh, actually uh, because of Trump, the Democrats were able to hold the Senate. So those are about 20% of the swing voters and maybe about six or seven states and those are the ones that I think are being influenced by these indictments. And if and when, and it's only if, Mr. Trump is convicted of a crime. Right now, he's presumed innocent until there's a verdict. Those 20% will decide the election. The polls that you're looking at now really don't matter. It's about the 20% swing voters in about six or seven states that will elect the next president. Yeah, it's, I'm very interested to see how it unfolds. And okay, so moving on to the Bill Clinton case, you served as special counsel to President Bill Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Looking back, what were the key legal and public relations challenges you faced during that time? Well, first of all, I was not uh, a special counsel after the matter involving Ms. Lewinsky broke into the media and led to an impeachment that was unsuccessful uh, and led to a very substantial acquittal in the Senate where 10 Republicans voted to acquit. But uh, I had left the White House and was acting as a private citizen. So I'm often uh, perceived to have represented President Clinton during the Lewinsky matter, but I was a private citizen doing that work. While I was at the White House, I did media defense work for President Clinton as a White House spokesman and as special counsel on a bunch of alleged uh, alleged violations of campaign donation, campaign finance laws that the Republicans were looking at. But back to Ms. Lewinsky, I also want to just correct. I've always uh, disagreed with the expression Lewinsky scandal. Uh, this wasn't uh, about Monica Lewinsky, nor should her name be in the history books uh, as alone as a name that describes the scandal. It was about uh, a, a relationship uh, arising out of a human weakness that 
uh, President Clinton, unlike um, other presidents who've been uh, accused of having this human weakness, he owned up to not only publicly and not only apologized for the relationship, he testified in front of a grand jury under oath on international television live, an incumbent president of the United States testifying in front of a grand jury on television in which he admitted this, uh, what he called uh, improper intimate conduct. Those were his words. And uh, this is a president of the United States who publicly was willing to tell the truth in front of the world on television, as well as a federal grand jury. And it's hard enough for people in their private lives to admit to these uh, problems and human weaknesses in a relationship or in a marriage, much less to do it as a sitting president in public. But he did it. And I don't understand why people still talk about him lying under oath. Just read the transcript he admitted under oath in front of a federal grand jury on national and international television, the truth about this very embarrassing episode in his life that was really between him and his wife more than it was about uh, a violation of the constitution. Oh, 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 that's very interesting. So I know that you said before that you weren't really his legal counsel, you were acting more as a private citizen right. advising him, but along those lines, um, how did you manage advising him and his defense in a, in a sense and managing the media circus surrounding the whole situation because it was one of the most publicly uh, known about things, but uh, especially with the president. So it's very interesting to see how you deal with all the media surrounding the phenomenon. Well, first of all, my motivation for doing it and for going to the White House, uh, a great honor to be invited to serve as his counsel and to defend him in the media on legal issues, goes back to my time at law school where I first met the then first lady um, back then, her last name was Rodham. Hillary Rodham was a first year law student when I was a third year, which is the senior year in law school, which is three years. And I met the then freshman first year law student, Hillary Rodham, and we became friends. After I graduated law school, uh, I stayed on in New Haven, Connecticut. And I met uh, in the spring uh, time, her future husband, who was a law student named Bill Clinton, who came in a year after. Uh, so he was a year behind her because he had gone to England for two years on a Rhodes Scholarship. So that's how I got to know the Clintons. It was that history with the two of them that led me to work in the White House and also led me to volunteer uh, to defend him during the Lewinsky matter. And over the years, uh, ever since, I've been known and always willing to defend and promote not only two friends of mine, a former president and a first lady, but she became a United States senator, very successful senator from New York. And then, of course, she ran for president in 2008 and 2016 unsuccessfully, but both as a friend as well as somebody who believes strongly in her capabilities, I um, remained a public spokesperson and sometimes defender if she needed defense for uh, really my close friend, uh, Hillary Clinton. I got to know President Clinton only because of uh, my friendship with Hillary. Oh, so your ties to them go way back. Way back. We graduated in uh, the late, I graduated in 1970 in, at Yale Law School and they graduated in 72 or 73. 
and but we've remained uh, connected ever since he ran for governor and was elected in Arkansas and ever since. And uh, the last uh, case that I want to touch on is just briefly the Bush case. Um, you have a history of working with both Democrats and Republicans. So can you tell us about your experience representing former, former President George W. Bush in the past and what led to that collaboration, especially uh, breaking the party lines, if you will? So again, uh, the word representation is a little bit too strong. I was appointed to a panel that had been established by the 9-11 Commission after the 9-11 tragedy uh, to advise the Office of the President on privacy and civil liberties issues. And that panel had five people on it, and one of them had to be a member of the opposite party. So mm -hmm. with four Republicans in a Bush Republican White House, they were searching for a Democrat who would say yes. And President Bush and I had been friends since college. So I went to college with uh, then uh, George W. Bush. Then subsequently, when I was in law school, I met the Clintons, or at least Hillary when I was in law school. So my history with uh, President Bush went back to college days in New Haven at Yale College. And when he appointed me to this board, Civil Liberties and Oversight Board, uh, it was during the era where there needed to be a much stronger response to terrorism. And that led the government to engage in uh, oversight and surveillance to try to capture the next 9-11 terrorists before they actually struck America. And in trying to find them ahead of time, there was a stretching of definitions of when you could legally intercept telephone calls or intelligence information. And the law needed to be rewritten and the word communications needed to include the word computer or data, which when it was written, there was no such thing. So during the time period when there was a gray area of what you were allowed to do, this board that I was appointed to by President Bush looked at the gray area and made uh, some recommendations. And since I left that position, continued to make recommendations to Congress, how to make it more grounded in law as to what kind of interception of telephone calls could be made without violating American civil liberties and privacy rights. And that's the board that President Bush appointed me to. Oh, that's very interesting. So in the midst of the 9-11 attacks. Right. Uh, well, after the 9-11 yeah, attacks. Yeah. 2006, 2007 that, that I served on this civil liberties board appointed by President Bush. Um, and finally, uh, just looking back, I know that you're also uh you've written multiple books um how could you compare writing and the publishing process to everything else that you do in your career just pain <laughs> writing is a very painful process i've been writing all my life i was editor of the yale newspaper and have been writing uh columns and political op-eds i just always wanted to be a writer but I don't know any writer that disagrees. Some have a great deal of enjoyment in writing. For me, it's always painful because I'm always editing my editing. And <laughs> there's a point where I, I really drive myself crazy because I have to leave it alone and let somebody else do the editing. My oldest son, whose name is Seth, his uh, name is actually more familiar to people who are younger, especially men, because he does the NCAA March Madness uh, coverage uh, prior to the NCAA tournament, he's on CBS doing the game of the week. And then he does uh, a large part of the tournament on CBS. 
And as a journalist, he's also uh, a writer. And he's always reminded me, because he reads my writing as a uh, as a loyal son, he always tells me I'm, I'm doing good work. But he also says, Dad, you need an editor. <laughs> so it's a long answer to your question. Writing for me is always painful because I do need an editor. But if I have a good editor, my books have turned out OK. Oh, I'm sure that they're great. And to, uh, the last question that I want to ask is um, in the midst of constant news circulation, especially on social media and constant television coverage, how do you see your role of a crisis manager and lawyer um, changing since news is much more readily available these days? So this is a very simple answer, yet in our post-Trump era, it's a very complicated thing to do. And that is to remind people of the pristine facts and then let them decide on the adjectives and the adverbs and the participles that lead to spin and political argument. You can take a fact and argue it pro or argue it con, depending on sometimes your political point of view. But it doesn't change being a fact. So mm -hmm. when I'm advising clients in crisis management, if I have bad facts, there's nothing I can do about those bad facts. I don't delete them. You can't just hit a button and say they don't exist. So I have to find a way representing a client with bad facts to put some context or explanation around the bad facts, but still support getting the facts out. Sooner or later, the bad facts are going to come out. It's not easy to convince clients who want to hide bad facts. And sometimes they ask me, who, what side are you on? Why are you volunteering bad facts? And my answer is almost always, with some exceptions, the facts are coming out whether you like it or not. If you let me put the facts out, if they're bad facts, the reporter or the media organization will give me a chance to explain the bad fact. Sometimes there's no explanation other than owning it and expressing regret. And sometimes clients of mine have to do that. But it comes down to the simple proposition of get the facts out early and yourself. And then the more complicated is how to argue bad facts and try to put some context around them so they're not as bad once all the facts are known. That's my strategy in crisis management. Well, that seems to be very uh, successful. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. This thank was you, very Harry. insightful. Uh, my thank honor. you so much. Thank you for watching Harry's Take. What's your take?